Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Happy Mama's Day. What a wonderful day to gather with the people of God in the presence of God as we open up His Word, as we read it, as we sing it, as we pray it, as we come together and celebrate our mothers and who they are and how the Lord has used them and all that they've done for us. And so before we get into the Word, um, let us pray. Let us lift up our moms in thanking the Lord uh, for the wonderful gift that He has blessed us with. Our Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your mercy and for Your grace. I thank You for Your goodness. God, I thank You for all the women You have blessed us with. Thank You for our moms. Thank You for our wives. God, even thank You for our spiritual moms in the church. God, thank you that you have made us a family. A family made of different people from different walks of life with different struggles. And you have united us in you, Lord Jesus. And for some of us, we are spiritual moms and dads. For some of us, we are spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. And for some of us, we are spiritual grandparents for the family of God. And we thank you for your family. We thank you for the family that you've provided for us. And Lord, I pray that as we get into your word, can you speak to us? Lord, can you stir our affections for you? Can you help us to see the beauty of this text and how you've been honored and how you've received that honor? Lord, we really can't un understand this text without you, without your spirit illuminating truth. So, Spirit, can you open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our mind? Can you convict us of sin? Can you help us to behold King Jesus? Can you use my words and speak through me that I may boldly and accurately proclaim Christ, that I may point people to no longer look to themselves, but ultimately to look to you. And we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege that we get to gather, and we thank you for your family. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to John. We're in John uh, chapter 12 as we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. And again, what is John trying to do? John is trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And the way he does it is by showing us how Jesus revealed his glory and also how Jesus is going to receive glory from the Father. Now, we are at the point in the Gospel of John where Jesus is no longer revealing his glory, but rather now Jesus is beginning to receive glory from the Father. And the ultimate purpose and what John is trying to do is to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah and to 
invite us in to believe so that we may have life in his name. Now, we found in the Gospel of John that the raising of Lazarus caused the religious authorities to decide to arrest and kill Jesus in fear of losing power and privilege. And while the Jewish authorities are plotting the arrest of Jesus, Jesus kind of backed down and moved a little further away from Jerusalem. But now as we're in the text in John chapter 12, we see that Jesus is coming near to Jerusalem and celebrating with his friends as he's gathering for a meal as they're honoring their friend Jesus. Now, as we move into chapter 12 in the Gospel of John, we're entering into the final week of Jesus' ministry. And while the rest of the Gospel authors are really focusing on the events surrounding Jesus' last week, John is kind of focusing something different. He's focusing more on Jesus' personal interaction during this last week. And in our text, what we're going to see today and even next week, we're going to see how Jesus is being honored by others, even though they're not grasping the significance and the meaning of how they are honoring him. And we're also seeing how Jesus is not just being honored, but also receiving this honor. And so today we're going to look at the anointing of Jesus in Bethany, and next week we're going to look at the triumphal entry of Jesus in Jerusalem. But before we unpack the story, I was kind of debating uh, with myself whether I should give you all of this information or just go into the text, and so I kind of go back and forth, deleted a bunch of pages, then added a bunch of pages, and then now even now I'm like second-guessing myself. I figure let's just give you all the information, and the reason why is because I think it's important for us to understand so that we can see a bigger grasp of what's actually going on. And what we're going to find in the the story of John, this story is also reported in the other Gospels. And so we're going to find a similar story in Matthew, in Matthew 26. We're going to find a similar story in Mark, Mark chapter 14, and also in Luke chapter 7. And so what I want to do is I want to show you kind of the, the unity, the continuity among these stories and also a little bit of the discontinuity and then kind of draw some principles from that so that we can look at our text in John chapter 12 and hopefully we can see the bigger picture. So it's interesting when we look at the, the narrative in Matthew and Mark, both of them include the anointing of Jesus in Bethany and the house of Simon the leper. Both Mark and Matthew place the story close to the end of Jesus' ministry. The woman is unnamed, and she anoints Jesus' head with the ointment of nard from an alabaster jar. The disciples see all of this. They are indignant and think this is a waste of resources that rather should be spent on the poor. And what does Jesus do? He defends this woman relating this anointing, this action of what she's done to his death and his burial. And Jesus mentions, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me with you. And besides, what she has done will be remembered wherever the gospel is being proclaimed. In other words, both Matthew and Mark's story lines up exactly. But then by contrast, we go to Luke. And in Luke chapter 7, he reports a dinner at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. 
and an unnamed woman of an immoral character learns of the presence of Jesus. And at the meal, she brings an alabaster jar of perfume. He doesn't tell what kind of perfume, just an alabaster jar of perfume. And she is so overcome with remorse that she is weeping and wetting his feet with her tears and then taking her hair and wiping Jesus' feet. And then she anoints his feet. And the discussion does not center on the poor, nor Jesus relating this event to his burial. But rather, he addresses the unvoiced accusation of Simon the Pharisee, who thinks that if Jesus was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, and he would not allow this woman to touch him. And Jesus, detecting her tears and the gratitude, he draws this principle saying, those who have been forgiven much love much, and those who've been forgiven little loves little. So which means when you compare the event in Matthew and Mark and the event in Luke, it almost seems, and the conclusion is, there are two different events. And this is our safe conclusion. So what that means is as we look at John, we can compare John to Luke because that was a different event. But rather, we can compare John to that of Matthew and of Mark. Everybody understands that so far. Even though we read of four occasions, Luke is a different story. Matthew, Mark, and John, that's the same story. Got it? Okay. Let's move on. So now when we compare the event of John and that of Matthew and Mark, it's the same event because all three place the anointing in Bethany. However, Matthew and Mark specify that it is the house of Simon the leper. John doesn't tell us who it belongs to. All three ointments are made of nard, and all three reactions from the onlookers is that this perfume should have been sold and given to the poor. Matthew and Mark specifies that it was the disciples who objected to this, while John tells us and only mentions one disciple, he mentions Judas. And we'll look at it in a minute. All three of them mentions the value of the perfume. And in all three instances, John defends this woman and then relates this, this, this event to his burial. However, and here's the problem we run into. However, if we compare all three accounts, or well basically Matthew, Mark, to that of John, there's also some things that are not lining up. So, for example, Matthew and Mark is placing this anointing after the triumphal entry. John places this event before the triumphal entry. There are several other details that are not lining up. For example, Matthew and Mark doesn't name the woman. John names the woman Mary, which is no big deal. Another one is both Matthew and Mark speaks of this, uh, of this woman or Mary breaking the alabaster jar, the neck of the alabaster jar. John doesn't. And Matthew and Mark, here's the biggest uh, difference, speaks of the anointing of Jesus' head while John is speaking of the anointing of Jesus' feet. 
And unfortunately, what people do is they look at the different details of the story of Matthew and Mark and that of John, and they're saying the story is not lining up, which means one of them are in error. And since most people don't like the Gospel of John, they're like, John is in error. This is why we can't trust the Bible, because the Bible is full of errors. Look at all these details that are missing and the inconsistencies of these narratives. And if we did not believe in the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture, this would be the point of my sermon, and we would just move on and just send you off on your merry way. But if you really look at these details, even though they might be a little different, I do not think that there's any real contradiction here. For example, let's talk about the placing of the event. Matthew Mark places the event after the triumphal entry. John places it before. How do you explain it? One of the things we have to understand and what we've seen is biblical writers, some biblical writers, especially Matthew Mark, they're organizing some of, the, some of the events around a theme. They do not care about chronology. They care about theme. And we even see, uh, like for example, in, in the book of Revelation, like for many of us as Westerners, we like to read a story from beginning to end. And when we tell a story, we tell it from beginning and end because we in our minds, we are logical, reasonable people. A leads to B, B leads to C, C leads to D, and it just goes on and on and on. But Hebrew authors and ancient biblical authors did not necessarily write in a linear line chronologically. So even in the book of Revelation where John, where many scholars believe John is not kind of writing chronologically, but rather he's bouncing around showing us different windows, and then we're trying to figure out what kind of window do we see in everything. And this is what John did, and this is now what Matthew and Mark is doing in their Gospels. They're arranging the events around a theme, not telling us a chronological story. That's the first explanation of the placement. And the reason why, why John is placing the event before the triumphal entry, because he wants to place this event close to the, the, the raising of Lazarus and the decision of the religious leaders and also the devotion of Mary and then the startling decision not only to kill Jesus, but also Lazarus, and we'll see it in our text in a moment. Another difference is John doesn't mention the amount of nard or perfume that's being used. Well, Matthew and Mark tells us that the neck of the bottle was broken. And any time you break the neck of the bottle, you got to use all of it. It's far too large of a quantity only to pour out over Jesus' head or over Jesus' feet. In both Matthew and Mark, Jesus is reported to say that the perfume was poured out on his body in anticipation of his burial. 
which is a strange way to say that only his head was anointed, which means this amount of perfume and the large quantity was applied more than on Jesus' head and more than on Jesus' feet, is rather applied to his whole body. However, Matthew and Mark is focusing on Jesus' head and John is focusing on Jesus' feet. And the question is, why is Matthew and Mark focusing on Jesus' head and why is John focusing on Jesus' feet? Because what Matthew and Mark is trying to show us that this anointing was just was not just a preparation of his burial, but also the anointing was the anointing of a king. How did they anoint kings? By pouring oil on their heads. And this is what John is try, what, what Matthew and Mark was trying to show us. But John had a different purpose. He wasn't trying to tell us that Jesus was king. But rather, he's showing us a different picture by mentioning Jesus' feet. What he's doing, he's giving us a picture of this woman's self-perceived unworthiness and the disciples struggling to see this picture. Because here's this woman, and her unworthiness comes at the feet of Jesus and does an act that no respectable person would ever do. She lowers herself even to that of the lowest of servants and washing his feet. And you know what happens in John 13? What does Jesus do? He washes his disciples' feet. So what we see is this picture of humility continues as the disciples look at Mary, judging Mary like, what is wrong with this woman? And then what does Jesus do in chapter 13? He takes off his clothes, wrap a towel around his waist, and he gets on his knees, and he washes their feet. And what does Peter say? You're not going to wash my feet. This is, the Son of God does not do such a thing like that. And yet, what does Jesus teach him? Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. And then he says, just wash my whole body. He's like, hey, your body is clean. Only your feet need to be washed. But anyway... Do you see the theme of what John's trying to show us? So despite, here's my point, despite these minor differences between the account of John and Matthew and Mark, really what it does is it gives us a comprehensive account of what actually is happening and still focusing on what the author is trying for, to convey to us. So let's look at detail of this story and let's look at the imagery and let's look at the message that John is trying to convey to us. Look at uh, John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, poured pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in. And Jesus answered, leave her alone. 
She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So, so let's stop here and unpack this a little bit. So remember, the religious authorities said, we're going to arrest him, we're going to kill him. Jesus moves further away, about 12 miles away from Jerusalem. The Passover feast is close. And now Jesus goes to Bethany to celebrate with his friends as they're holding a dinner in honor of him. And Bethany was about a little less than two miles from Jerusalem, and it was the hometown of both of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And what John does in a subtle way, look at verse 1. He says, six days before the Passover. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the show 24, the countdown timer. Uh, and you're wondering in anticipation what's going to happen. But what he's doing is he's showing us the countdown timer. Because in a subtle way, he is reminding us that the one who raised Lazarus from the dead is going to go to his own death as the sacrificial lamb, as the new Passover lamb. Time is ticking down. His death is drawing closer and closer. And it's tied to the Passover. For he will be the new Passover lamb. And so Jesus goes to the village of Bethany. And more than likely, uh, this was not just uh, the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that hosted a dinner, but rather this was a village dinner in honor of Jesus, which means several families were involved. Even though John doesn't mention all the families were involved, the other, uh, uh, Matthew, Mark tells us uh, whose house it was, the house of Simon the leper, but John tells us the involvement of his three friends. Martha was in the process of serving everybody food as she always does. Jesus was sitting with Lazarus, probably reclining with many more other people around the table. And Mary, where is Mary always? At the feet of Jesus. And she takes a pound of very expensive perfume to anoint Jesus. And all three gospel tells us the value of this perfume. It was basically a year's worth of wages, so her gift was extravagant. Her gift was generous. Now, this gift could have been an heirloom that have been passed on from generations to generations, or this gift could have been out of the wealthiness of this family. But it doesn't matter where this gift came about and the heart behind it in a sense because what this gift shows us that this gift was a humble expression of her devotion to Jesus. And this is why John focuses on Jesus' feet because it signifies the utmost self-humbling devotion and love regardless of the cost or what others might think. And I would even think that the most horrendous action wasn't taking a year's worth of wages and dumping it on Jesus, but rather in the culture was for Mary to let down her hair in front of everybody at the feet of Jesus and washing his feet and wiping it off with her hair. Because to wash feet was an act that not even the lowliest servants could possibly do. And if they did it, it was because they were 
the lowest and lowest of servants. And so not only is Mary humbling herself to the lowliest of servants, but she also lets down her hair, knowing the judgment, knowing the possible cost of it. Because the only time a woman would let down her hair was in a private encounter with her husband. And here she does it in front of everybody. Now, I didn't want to say that, but it just slipped out. So I want to give you a note. That doesn't mean Jesus and Mary was in a relationship and secretly got married and it was a secret love affair. That was not that. It was just simply Mary adoring Jesus in the most intimate of way because he was her Lord and Savior and King. And what we're going to see in this act of what Mary does Jesus even demonstrated, as I mentioned earlier, to his disciples before he goes to the cross. He washes their feet, an act of humility and devotion. And although John mentions that it was Judas who was speaking out and protesting or had the bad thought, and Jesus knew what he was thinking, Matthew and Mark tells us, yeah, it was all of the disciples. And you can imagine probably all the disciples thought the same thing. Maybe Judas was the only one that said something out, out loud. But what is John trying to do? John is persistent and tagging Judas as the traitor because of the shocking force of their hindsight. It's like as, as if John cannot recollect anything that Judas did or said without thinking he is the one who betrayed our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And John calls him a thief. Because anyone who would betray a friend for 30 pieces of silver clearly had an unhealthy love for material things. And Paul even tells us, for the love of money is what? The root of all evil. And Judas loved more money than anything else. And so John calls him a thief. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he tells his disciples, leave her alone. Look, look at verse 7. Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. Mary did not know what she was doing. She did not know that she was preparing Jesus' body for burial. She did not even know that Jesus was going to die. What had she attempted to do? She, in her action, meant to be a costly, humble devotion as she was expressing her love and adoration for Jesus. And just like Caiaphas, who spoke more of what he actually knew, Mary did more of what she actually knew she was doing. Because in that culture of that day, it wasn't uncommon to spend a ton of money on funeral. Like we even look at Jesus' burial, they spent 75 pounds of expensive perfume to anoint his body and to prepare his body for burial. 
And so in that Jewish culture, like, like you spend, that's where your money goes. Not necessarily weddings, but funerals. And so it wasn't uncommon to spend all of that money on a dead person during a funeral. But what was weird was spending it on somebody who was alive. And the reason why they spent so much money on the funeral and spent so much money on the perfume was to help stifle the smell of decay. But here, what is Mary doing? She's lavishing Jesus while he was still alive. And for them, they saw it as a waste. Like, I guarantee you, um, if she did it when Jesus was dead, they wouldn't have said anything. But because he was alive, they're thinking, what a waste of money. And yet Mary was doing way more than what she actually thought she was doing. And look at Jesus, what Jesus says. He says, for you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. In other words, he's not giving them an excuse for stinginess or generous giving. He's not saying, don't take care of the poor, but rather he is reminding them, you will always have the poor, but I will not always be here with you. And what John and what Matthew and Mark is really showing us in this imagery, and I know for some of you are thinking, well, that's obvious, is that Jesus is being honored. But the profoundness is not only is he being honored, he's also receiving honor. So if you're taking notes, write it down. Here we we see in the story that Jesus is honored, but Jesus is also receiving the honor. Now, Now just think about this with me for a second. If Jesus is being honored, which that's great, he should be, but if he's receiving the honor, what does that show us? It shows us that he's more than just a mere man. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. Because if he was only a mere man, then that means he has to be mentally ill. In other words, he is struggling with narcissism and arrogance. Because what mere man in his right mind will rebuke his disciples and say, I'm more important than the poor, other than a narcissist and an arrogant man. But what does Jesus do? He receives the honor. Why? Because he is the Son of God. Because he is worthy of all honor. And he is is receiving and he will receive the same honor that is due to the Father. In other words, now we're slowly but surely seeing Jesus not uh, revealing his glory, but rather Jesus receiving glory. Glory from the Father as people are honoring him. For a mere man cannot be honored in this way. Only the Son of God. And this is what John is showing us in a subtle way. And Jesus receives this honor of Mary because he's worthy of all honor. And after Jesus was honored, look at what happened next before he was honored. Again, verse 9 says this, Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. In other words, what's happening? Word on the street is spreading. Jesus is close to Jerusalem. 
And we already said many, many pilgrims are in Jerusalem. Why? Because they're getting ready for the Passover feast. They are cleansing themselves in preparation of this feast. And they have to be there a week in advance because this cleansing took an entire week. And they hear, Jesus is close to Jerusalem. Let's go out and see him. Oh, and by the way, he's with Lazarus, a guy who was dead and now he's alive. We want to go ahead and see him too. And what is becoming clear and what became clear to the religious leaders is they were losing popularity. More than likely, Nicodemus has already defected. Jews are believing in Jesus. They were impressed that he healed the man born blind. They were impressed that he raised the dead. And that he's drawing a crowd across the Jordan. And many are putting their faith in him. And all this prepared for the acclaim that Jesus would receive at his triumphal entry, which led the Pharisees to say, look, the world has gone after him. So, so let's wrap it up and, and talk about application here. Obviously, a major theme that John is showing us is that Jesus is honored and he is receiving honor because he is worthy of all honor. For if he wasn't worthy of all honor and receiving honor, then he must be a mentally ill man. But he's not. He's the Son of God. He is the Christ. But here's a a secondary thing that, that I think is relevant for us that we can learn from. John is also showing us not just a picture of Jesus and worthy of honor, but he's also showing us two pictures between Mary and Judas. And the contrast couldn't be any clearer. Mary, what is Mary doing? She is at the feet of Jesus, adoring him in love. She's offering extravagant devotion, anointing him for his burial. And what does Judas, what does he do? He sits in a condescending, arrogant, judgmental way, not only questioning Mary in the act that she has done, but also questioning and judging Jesus, the willingness to accept such a gift. And really, here's the contrast in a simpler form if you're taking notes. We see that one is a worshiper and the other one is a thief. We see the one who gives sacrificially and honor and the other one who seeks personal gain. The second one, if you're taking notes, one gives in sacrificial honor and the other seeks personal gain. And the third one, if you're taking notes... We see one is a demonstration of grace and the other one is a way of sin. And even a fourth one, if you want to say, one is acting in faith and belief, adoring Christ, seeing who he is, and the other one in unbelief. Now, John doesn't tell us, neither does Matthew or Mark tell us, But I wonder if it was at that moment where Judas made up his mind. I am going to betray him. 
And here's why I think that. Because obviously he was following Jesus. Jesus was good. But the fact that Jesus would receive such a gift and such an honor, how can a man be good? And if he was only a man receiving such honor and gift, I would say the same thing. But here's what Judas failed to see. Jesus was not a mere man. He was the Son of God. And if he is the Son of God, he is worthy of such honor. And so here's the two pictures we see. One at the feet of Jesus, adoring him, lavishing him, and extravagant gifts in the most utmost humility, worshiping him. The other one, just standing back, judging a thief, only thinking about his own pocket, only thinking about his own personal gain. And one is a demonstration of the grace that's been lavished on them, and the other one is a way of sin where they are enslaved by it. Now, remember... And when I said that the story of Luke is a different event than that of Matthew, Mark, and John, they are. I know for some of you it might be a shock. You're like, what? They are. However, I do think this story and looking at the comparisons and the contrast between Mary and Judas, this story is pointing us in a sense to the story of what happened in Luke 7 where you had this unnamed sinful woman washing the feet of Jesus with her tears, while Simon, in a self-righteous Pharisee, is not only despising this woman, but also despising Jesus in his heart. And the big question is, what's the difference between those two? And Jesus tells us the difference. In a sense, he says, those who've been forgiven much, loves much. And those who've been forgiven little, loves little. Now, the application is don't go out and sin more so that you can be forgiven more. But rather, it is do you perceive your sin as horrendous? Or do you see your sin as no big deal? And for this woman, because her sin was obvious, especially from, from society's perspective, she felt the weight of it. But let me tell you, Simon the Pharisee was just as wicked and immoral as this woman, but because his sin was more uh, less disclosed and kind of more hidden, not as apparent in his mind, he's thinking, it's not that bad. See, here really is the difference between the worshiper and the thief, between the one who is sacrificially honoring and the one who's all about personal gain. The way of grace and the way of sin is do we recognize the severity of our sin and who is being sinned against? Do we feel the weight of it? Because it's only when we see the reality of our sin that we sin against the holy God. It's only then will grace be precious. But when we don't see the reality of sin and the severity of it against the holy God, grace is cheap. 
This is why, like, throughout our service, we do confession and assurance because we are reminded that we, all of us have sinned, and we've sinned against the holy God. This is a picture of the gospel here. And that when we stand before a holy God, our sin, we should be crushed by it. And I know we don't always feel crushed by our sins, but we should ask the Spirit to remind us of the severity of it and the weight of it by by giving us an honest reflection of who we are and an honest reflection of who God is. And it's only when we see these two pictures in a healthy relationship do we see the incredible grace. And that's the difference between Mary and Judah. That's the difference between a worshiper and a thief. So the question I have for you this morning, do you see the incredible grace that's been lavished on you? That God did not give you what you deserved. You deserve death. But he didn't give you what you deserved. Despite your horrendous rebellious action against the holy God. He did not annihilate you through his consuming wrath, but rather he let his son go through it on your behalf. And it's only when you can understand that will grace be incredible. And the frustrating part from my job is I can't make you get it. Even if I'm here for hours and describe explaining it to you till I'm blue in the face. I can't. It is only the Holy Spirit. And this is why we come and we gather, we read the Word, we sing the Word, and we're at the table. Because you know what the table reminds us of? The incredible grace that's been lavished on us, but it also reminds us the cost of that grace. It was His blood, not ours. What a privilege. And so before we participate in in communion, I want to give you a moment maybe just to reflect. Do you feel the weight of your sins? Do you see the reality and the severity of it against the holy God? And if you don't feel it, which we don't always do, ask the Lord to, to help you feel that weight. I ask the Lord to help you just be in awe of the incredible grace he's lavished on you. Just like Mary at the feet of Jesus, humble yourself before him. So let me give you a minute to do that, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll distribute the elements. Our sovereign God, can you help us in our view of you?
and our view of ourselves. Can you help us to grasp a little bit of the reality of your holiness and in your power and your majesty? And can you help us to grasp the reality and the severity of our sin? Can you help us to see our sin as more than just a mistake, a flaw, and passive action? Or rather, can you help us to see our sin as an active rebellion, God-defying, denying you? Spirit, can you help us feel the weight of our sin right now? And in that crushing weight of sin, can you help us to look to Christ and what he's done on the cross for us? Where he substituted himself and he died in our place while we were still defying him, rebelling against him. You did not give us what we deserve. Can you help us not to be crushed by our sin, but feel the weight of it? And can you help us to be in awe of the incredible grace? And Lord, as we distribute these elements, can you help us, in a sense, be overcome by this precious gift that you've given us? How could it be that a sinner like me can share in the glorious wonders of Christ, that he would die in my place, that he would take my sin upon himself? He who knew no sin became sin and would pay for it in full. Can you help me to fix my eyes on you, Lord Jesus, and be overcome by the incredible grace that you've lavished on me? Can the beauty and the riches of the gospel become more reality for me in my life and for our lives as we behold you? And Lord, can you help us to respond and humble adoration and love towards you as we honor you, for you are worthy of all honor and all praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements. And as we distribute these elements, just think about this precious gift that's been given to you the marvelous, amazing grace that's been lavished on you. I'm just, just amazed at the, the paradox in the gospel because on one hand, we are worthless sinners saved by grace. And yet, because of the grace that's been lavished on us, we become worthy saints. And it's not because we've done anything. It's because of what Christ has done for us. And he didn't just declare it. 
he paid for it by his body that was given to you. Eat it in remembrance of him. By his blood that was shed for you, drink it in remembrance of him. And thank the Lord because of his incredible mercy and grace and love that he's lavished on us, that he's taken us unworthy sinners and made us worthy saints. And so go ahead and just in your time right now, just praise the Lord, thank the Lord for the incredible gift. Lord, thank you. Lord, may this gift become real, more real every day for us. As we fight against sin, and at times we might be discouraged, help us in that time of discouragement to look to you and just be overcome by your incredible grace. Help us to respond in humility and adoration as we trust you, as we look to you, as we rest in you. We love you and we praise you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship our King.